Now, of course, we're still in Revelation chapter 14, but I want you to go to Romans chapter 11 and verse 20, 22. Verse 22, because there's something there in Romans 11 which really does capture exactly what's in mind now. And it says there, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. Well, already this morning we've rejoiced in the love of God. Now, that's his goodness. That is his goodness. God is good. And we're going to be looking at pictures of the goodness of God as we go through this book of Revelation. And they get better and better and richer and richer and fuller and fuller and your heart gets strangely warmed and moved and stirred when you see the things that God has prepared for those that love him. It's very beautiful, isn't it, in the light of what we've had this morning. On the other hand, as it were, the opposite, the other side of that coin is the severity of God, the goodness and the severity of God. And that really encapsulates the uh, sermon that I have this morning, particularly from uh, continuing in Revelation and chapter 14. Because what we're doing as we're moving now through this book is to get to the point where we're seeing pictures of final blessing. We're getting to finality. We're getting to the end of, as it were, the art gallery. It's pictures of finality, final scenes of blessing, and there's final scenes of judgment, all right, final. And the truth is that all of mankind and all of us here, as we've emphasized last time, we're, we're destined for those final scenes, and either it will be blessed or either we will be judged. I will, either we will know the love of God in its fullness or we'll be under the wrath of God, the severity of God. And so the, the coming of the Lord Jesus, you know, it will either mean for us a thing of blessing, you know, joy, fulfillment, comfort, hope realized and beyond our hopes realized. It'll be the grandest moment of all time when the Lord himself comes and takes us home. Or actually it will be a terrible time. It will. It'll be a terrible time because it won't be the bringing of joy and comfort. It will actually be the finality of damnation and eternal judgment. That's what it'll be. And see, what we're seeing as we're going to go through these pictures and get these pictures of what's final is really summed up in the last book of the Revelation, the last chapter, when it says there that let him that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Let him that is unjust, let him be unjust still. That's final, you see. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. In other words, what's being said there is, let him that is filthy be filthy still. Because now there is no possibility of ever, ever being washed and made clean. That's it. Final judgment. Final scenes. When it says, let him that is holy or righteous, let him be holy and righteous still, there, it's a state of affairs whereby there is no possibility that that person can ever become filthy again, can ever be unwashed again. Sin can never touch them again. There's finality in the scene. Final blessing, you see, or it's final judgment. It's final love and it's fullness realized and experienced and enjoyed forever, 
or this final judgment, and there is absolutely no reversing of the situations. Now, we've already gone through the book, and you, you find there's pictures of blessing, and you find there's pictures of judgment, but, you know, they're only sort of partial. They're not, they're not sort of opening up the final scene, and that's what we're waiting for, aren't we? We're waiting for that final scene where there's a new heaven, and there's a new earth, and in there there dwells righteousness. We're waiting to actually see the new heavens and the new earth. We're actually waiting to realize something of the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And so we haven't quite seen that, yet is the book's opening. We're going to see it. Oh, it's getting bigger and bigger. The visions of glory are getting bigger and bigger. And also we have seen here the visions of wrath and the visions of judgment. But again, they're not complete. You open up the seals and you find that, what is it? Uh, a quarter, isn't it? A quarter of the earth is... Is, um, comes under God's judgment. A, a quarter of all of mankind are hurt by the judgments of God. And then you open up, the, the trumpets come next, and you listen to them sounding, and you say, well, there's judgment, there's judgment, there's pictures of terrible judgment. But it's only a third of the earth, you see. It's partial. And there's a third of mankind that are hurt by the judgments of God. But now we're moving on to something more than that. You see, we're moving on to scenes that are final. You know, going through the book of Revelation is, is just like going to some grand art gallery. Think of it like this, you know, we have some wonderful art galleries in the world and they put on exhibitions at different times, don't they? And they, they give the exhibition a name and then they'll tell you who the artist is. You know, they might say, well, this is an exhibition and it's called Springtime. And we've got in here, Monet is the artist with all his impressionistic pictures of gardens and flowers and springtime. You say, well, that's a lovely exhibition. Well, I tell you, when you're going through the book of the Revelation, what you're actually doing is going to the art gallery and God is the artist. God is the artist. And the name of the, of the exhibition is Revelation. And he's revealing his thoughts. He is revealing his son. He is revealing the, revealing the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's revealing unto us the things that he has prepared for those that love him. And as you read and read on and you see it opening up and you see these pictures of blessing, you see these, the goodness of God unfolding and you're getting pictures of light, you're getting pictures of love, you're getting pictures of joy, you're hearing the singing, you're seeing the celebration, and above all, you're seeing the Lamb in all his glory in Emmanuel's land. And you think to yourself, this is wonderful, and your heart is strangely moved, for what you're seeing is what we've just said, the picture of the things which have not entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him, the things which he has revealed to us by his spirit. Revelation, you see, an opening up of the heart of God, an opening up of the glory of the future, an opening up of what blessing really is and the portion for everyone that's saved. And while I was looking at this last evening, I thought of that old hymn that we used to sing, you know, we speak of the land of the blessed, of its glories so bright and so fair, and oft are its glories confessed, but what will it be to be there? Praise God 
for every one of us washed in the blood of the Lamb, who've been wrapped in the love of God, who've been brought to know the Saviour, the entrance into blessing and a future of eternal joy. You know, the lady that wrote that hymn, she was only 26. And actually, she wrote it three weeks before she died. Wouldn't you like to die like that? You know? And e'en while the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, tis now. This is what, this is what faith's all about, you know. This is what Christianity's all about. This is what our hope is. This is how we actually live it. It's real. It's not a religion. It's a reality. And that's what we're going to see as we're opening up these pictures. And at the same time, you, whoo, you get these pictures of the opposite, wrath. You see, you've got love. You've got wrath. You've got blessing. You've got judgment. And when you, when you read those pictures, and we did read them last time in Revelation 14... You know, there's darkness and there's storm and there's anger and fire and torment and trembling and wailing and grief. And if when you read pictures of blessing, your heart was warmed and strangely moved, well, you know, you read the pictures of wrath, and I tell you, they make you fear. They make you tremble. There's a dreadful judgment coming upon this world in which we live, a terrible judgment, the wrath of God. It already abides on the children of disobedience. And that's why we like to take that gospel message and say, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. This is the gospel. Well, we're coming now into the book of into chapter 14, and I want to re- re-emphasize, this is a pivotal point in the opening up of the book of Revelation. A pivotal point. It emphasizes exactly what we've been saying, that there is love and there is wrath. There is blessing, there is judgment. You know, we've already read those first five verses, and you're thrilled by them when you read them. You remember the the redeemed on Mount Sion, and you heard the music of heaven, you heard the thunder, the the voice, as it were, of God, and the harpist, the instrument of heaven, and you saw the redeemed singing a song that no man could learn but they that were redeemed, a new song's in their heart, and you watch them in their purity of love for the Lamb, in their virgin affections, and in the unbroken fellowship that they have, following the Lamb whithersoever he goes, and they're standing before the throne of God, faultless. And see, what you're getting is a a picture of coming glory, and yet it's partial You know, it's not a picture of all the redeemed. It's not a picture of the fullness of the revelation of the glory of God. But there's enough in that picture to stir up your affections and to lighten up your eye and to give you hope. And you think to yourself, oh, what it will be wonderful to be there. How can I be there? And then this angel comes across the scene in verse 6. And he says, I'll tell you how people get there. And he's got the banner of the everlasting gospel. It brings everlasting salvation, everlasting life. The means whereby a sinner can procure the blessings of redemption through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after that, you get the order, you see. You've got the blessing. Now you have the judgment. You've got the love of God and his provision for those that love him. And then you have the wrath of God, which is there And it's there in its horror, really. And he gives the same angel who is going to preach the gospel, gives the warning in verse 7, very, very plainly. 
And in verse 6, and the warning is to everyone who failed to fear God, failed to glorify God, failed to worship God. In other words, they failed to embrace the meaning of the gospel and repentance. And you're left there thinking, this is dreadful, the possibility of coming wrath. And then you see Babylon coming down and a, a whole society that's anti-God and it's anti-Christ and it's anti-Christian and it lives in its sinful, rebellious, self-indulgent perversion and lust and power and judgment comes. And you say, well, that's terrible, judgment coming on a society then you read further down in chapter 14 and it gets worse and worse because you get this picture of judgment falling on the individual and they're going to drink, it says, the wrath of God is poured out without mixture in the cup of his indignation and they are tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever and they have no rest, day or night. Why? They've chosen to serve Satan and not to serve the Lamb. And they've sold out in life and they're sold out in eternity. Whew. When you wouldn't... You tremble to think of that. You tremble to think of that. See, this is what's... What we're getting here in these pictures is, rep, is a pictorial representation of how God works. Please, this is not new. We see love in its beauty. We see wrath in its awesomeness, fearfulness, horror. Now, this is not new to the theme of the Bible. This is how God has always worked. There has been blessing. Or, as an alternative, if you reject it, then there is cursing. There has been blessing offered. Or the alternative is always judgment. There is love, the love of God. Or there is what? The wrath of God. Now, God has always been the same. God has always worked the same way. There's been an offer of blessing. There is a warning of judgment and a provision of a way of escape. Get that clear. There has always been God wanting to bless. There has always been a warning of judgment if the blessing's not received. There's always been a way of escape, an offer whereby the blessing may be obtained and the judgment may be averted. God is consistent. God always acts the same way. He is consistent in all that he does. This is what we mean when we say God is immutable. Eternally immutable. He is unchanging. You get that, those of you who got the questions here? God is unchanging in his character and in all of his ways, the way he does things, the way who he is, what he is. He is unchanging. I want to get this clear because... You get this notion these days that, well, you know, you read the Old Testament and God is a God of judgment. But of course, where do you get into the New Testament? God is a God of love. And we don't talk about God as being a God of judgment anymore. We always remember what was said on Sky News, didn't you? Remember? 
Peter Credlin was saying, well, she didn't really sort of quite disagree with suggesting that sinners went to hell, but, you know, she was a, she was a Christian too, but a New Testament Christian. And so you sort of, there's hell in the Old Testament and none in the New. You know, God is a God of wrath back then. It's not like that. I want to make this very, very clear. I want you to get clear that God has, we can see scenes in the scriptures where this is God. This is the facts. This is how he acts. This is his immutability. This is his standards. These are his ways. For instance, you can look back in history and where are you going to start? We're going to start with the flood, really. That's just, you could start at the gates of Eden, the judgment of God at the gates of the Garden of Eden. He showed himself a God of judgment. He cursed the earth. He put the curse on the woman in childbirth. He put, put the curse on the man where he had to earn his bread in the sweat of his brow. He put the curse on the serpent. But at the same time, in his love, he told them there would be a way of escape in the seed of the woman. You take the flood, which is really one of the greatest marks in history of the judgment of God because of sin and on a sinful world. And what did God say? He says, the end of all flesh has come before me. He looks upon the world and he saw the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. And he got to the point where he said, this is enough. I gain no delight anymore from a race of people who just live in perversion and in rebellion against myself, against myself. What did he do? He says, I'm going to bring judgment down. I'm going to bring a flood. And then he took up one man. You see the preparation of God? There's the wrath of God. There's the judgment of God. In his goodness, there was that one man in his house, Noah. And he said, Noah, you go and build that ark. And Noah spent 120 years building the ark. What was he doing? He was like the angel waving the everlasting gospel, telling them that the judgment was coming, but there was a way of escape. And every time he, he as it were, un, picked up the hammer and banged in a nail, it was like saying, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Imagine being a next-door neighbor to Noah and being an unsaved person, an unbeliever, a rebellious, one who rebelled against God. It would drive you nuts. These days they complain about a barking dog. Think about a hammer going in for 120 years, if I could put it in, my, in modern terms. And not only that, the man wouldn't keep quiet about it. They tell us today, oh, well, why are you saying anything? You know, don't speak out against evil because, you know, nobody's going to listen to you. It's going to happen anyway, and you'll only get yourself a bad name. He got all of that. He was a preacher of righteousness, and he preached the voice of God, the word of God, and he spoke on behalf of God into the society of that, there, that then time a society of absolute perversion and evil. But he did it, and he did it, and he did it. And you know what? He did that, and as long as that door in that ark was open, there was a way of safety, wasn't there? The provision of God. Now, you see how I'm bringing out how God works, and he has worked, and he still works. He provides a means, a way of escape, until he shuts that door. And when he did, it didn't matter how much they cried. As the water grew deeper and deeper, it wouldn't matter how much they pleaded. It was final. And we're coming to that in the book of Revelation, these final scenes. It was exactly the same in the city of Sodom. There was judgment because of sin. There was a warning, you know. Down went the angel and said there to Lot, look, away up, flee for your life. Judgment is coming. And he went and told his family, and oh, they, it says it appeared in their ears as an idle tale. The notion is, oh, you know, Dad's on about something. I mean, well. This is utterly, well, Sodom was destroyed. And only the one who fled genuinely was the one that was delivered. And you can go into the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And rather tragically, 
the life of the Lord Jesus and the ministry of the Lord Jesus has been portrayed particularly in more recent years by the church as being some a sort of bland kind of generous, loving, giving, sort of tolerating, you know, only did things nice and said things nice and thought things nice. Now, this is not a true representation of the Jesus Christ of the Gospels and as recorded in the Gospel record. I was reading about the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, the last week. You know what he did in the last week? He, went, he, he was actually stayed in Bethany and every morning he journeyed into Jerusalem to perform some of his final work and to give some of his final teaching. Now you just imagine that, would you? He went back to Bethany into the house of who? Uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Can you imagine that, that privilege of entertaining the Lord Jesus in the last week of his life before he went to the cross? when he would go into the great city of Jerusalem, knowing that it would not be long before he would be crucified outside that city wall. Then he would go to a home where he was loved, where he was wanted, where he was welcomed. God give us homes like that, every single one of us. So they tell you if the Lord Jesus were here today, they wouldn't want him. Keep our doors open. Keep our homes open. Keep our hearts open. And he went in there and he, he rode upon that donkey, you remember? And they all cried out on that Palm Sunday, as they say, blessed, you know, is he that comes in the name of the Lord. This is him, the son of David. And there's triumphal songs and there's a, the, the sound of the children and they're joining in, giving glory to God. And he goes in there and he sees the temple and he, he sees the money changers and in his wrath, in his wrath, he turns, rise them out. He says, oh, you, don't you make my father's house a house of merchandise. It's meant to be a house of prayer. He turned to the Pharisees, and in his ministry, he rebuked them, he rebuked them, he rebuked them, and he rebuked them. We forget that the Lord Jesus Christ was angry, righteously angry as a man. For those of you who want to study this more fully, the emotions of the Lord Jesus, and it's worth doing, Dr. B.B. Warfield has written an excellent article on the emotional life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's absolutely most revealing in itself. And as you read on in the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus, two days before the Passover, two days before the crucifixion, he comes into that city and it's as though, it's as though he looks at it and it says there he looked at Jerusalem and he wept. He wept. Now, the word for weeping there is not just silently. It's, it's a, a choking sob that just broke out from the heart of a soon-to-be-crucified Christ as he stared at this mighty ancient city which had such a place in the purposes and actions of God. And he cried. And in his weeping, he said, Jerusalem, 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 Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets, you who have stoned the messengers which I have sent to you, how often would I have gathered you? How often would I have just hugged you in in safety? I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. Now you've got chickens, you've seen them. The crow flies over and the little baby ones, they... 
mother fluffs up her feathers and they go in underneath for safety. How often would I have done exactly that for you? Ah, but she would not. He said, here I am with the means of your salvation, with a way of escape for you from coming judgment, which is going to come upon even this city of Jerusalem. But she would not. And he says, here it is, the wrath of God. You see, the love of God offering, the love of Christ bursting from the sobbing heart of a Christ to be crucified. The alternative, he says, now from henceforth your house is left unto you desolate, empty, gone, glory, finished. We're dealing, fellow Christian, this morning with the goodness and the severity of God. It has been that way through the Old Testament. It's that way in the Gospels. It's that way right through the present day. There is either the love of God or the wrath of God. And in the final pictures that will unfold it, ultimately unfold it, we'll see it's exactly the same. But there is a message of hope and there's a message of deliverance. And there is a means whereby the blessings of God can be laid hold upon and the love of God can be known and felt and experienced and the future bright with glory. <clears throat> we spend it reveling in the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I want to just try and say a little more and bring together this whole idea of God. <clears throat> God a God of love, and God a God of wrath. Bring together the two thoughts in the one God, the goodness and the severity of God. You know, you, you say to yourself, well, how can we understand these apparently opposing ideas, almost contradictory things of love and wrath coming together one and the same time in one and the same person? You see, it's a problem to us. It's a problem to me. It's a problem to you. Why? Well, because you are angry. Now, that's the idea of wrath. You are angry. It's a bit hard to try and be loving when you're angry, isn't it? Is it? The notion of anger or wrath, it sort of takes over a bit and controls your whole outlook and sense of judgment and what you're doing at the time. See, that's why the scripture actually says to the Christian, you be angry. Now, it never says don't be angry, by the way. Because there's such a thing as righteous anger. There's things we should be very angry about. But he says, be angry uh, uh, and sin not. Because it's at that point where things can go way out of balance. See, we are sort of one or we're the other. But God is the both. Simultaneously, the both. A God of wrath and a God of love. They are not mutually exclusive in God. Always remember when pondering the marvel of God, he is not like us. That's the whole point of the holiness of God. First, when you think of the holiness of God, this is how I think because it helps me understand better, I used to go to the glory and the shining and the purity of God. But the essence of the word means different. So you start, and all those other things are true, but you start with the fact that God is different. He is solitary. He is on his own. He is lifted up above. He is quite different from. He is not like us. 
Keep following. 1 John 4 says this beautiful thing. God is love. Now, it didn't say that God is a loving God. That's true. Of course it's true. John, John's got a way of writing where he just penetrates into some of the inner depths of the mystery of divine truth. And he doesn't just say, well, God is a loving God or God loves. He says God is love. This is the nature of God himself. It means that there's no other love anywhere else that did not originate in him. If there were no God, there would be no love. He, in his nature, in his very essence, is love. Point one. Point two. It's because he is a God of love, listen carefully, that he is also a God of wrath. You say, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. It's because he is a God of love that he is a God of wrath. You say, well, how do you get that? Now, keep in mind what we've learned, because it seems polarization, contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, we've, we've learned in the previous sermon that you know, wrath is God's unchanging attitude to sin. That's what it is. Wrath involves the thought of indignation, the outrage of God at sin, the insult to his holiness, that sin would dare intrude into the perfection of his creature and of his creation. It carries the idea of hate. It goes right down to the thought of passion, does wrath, you know, love righteousness, hated iniquity. See that? It has the thought of anger in it. The whole inward emotions and being of the person that's involved. In anger, you see, he's angry with the wicked every day. And they all seem so opposite. But now let me explain how they come together. And I'm going to think in terms of a parent, a mother or a father. Indeed, I'm sorry, but if you don't mind, Demetrio, I'm going to pick on you as an example. We picked on John and his fishing last time. This time we're going to pick on Demetrio and his family, Right? What is he? He's a father, isn't he? He's got four little girls. Aren't they beautiful? Who wouldn't love them? Eh? I tell you somebody, something, there's someone here that loves them more than you or I, and that's Demetrio, the father, and the mother as well. You get it? A loving parent. Now, there comes a day when, you know, the father, the parent sees the children being attacked viciously and harmfully, dangerously, and cruelly, and this loving father, what's his reaction? How does he feel? What's his attitude? How is he stirred? What motions are moving now within his spirit? He's indignant. He's outraged. He's reaching the point of anger. He's going to intervene. He must intervene. He will put an end to what's going on. He will deal with those people that are causing this problem. Why is he so angry? He's angry because he loves. You get that? He's angry because he loves. He's angry because whom he loves and what he loves is being despoiled. He's angry because evil is triumphing, because destruction is coming. And as a parent and as a true father, he is full of wrath because he loves his children. Love cares. Love cannot be indifferent to evil. There is wrath because there is love. Take it further. Romans 12 and 9. 
He says there to the believer, let your love be a pure love. You be sure as a Christian, you've got real love. Let your love be without dissimulation. Or in other words, let it be the real thing. You know what the next verse says? Hate that which is evil. Because that's the consequence of true love. Genuine love produces that hate. All right, we talked about Demetrio. We could see his lovely little girls. And I tell you what, I'd be up next to him ready to thump. Pardon me saying so, but you understand what I'm trying to convey. Now think about it like this. How much more with God, who's a true heavenly father. God our father is a better father than I've ever been or ever would have been. He's a better father than Demetrio ever has been or ever will be because he's perfect in all his ways and the perfection of his fatherhood. I thought of it this morning when I spoke to him. I thought, I call him father and I'm speaking to someone whom I know really does love me with an everlasting love and a perfect love, and there's no dissimulation or impurity in that love. There's no admixture in it whatsoever. And God, the heavenly Father, he's, he sees his children, as we've had pictured in Revelation 14 and Revelation 13 and Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> he sees them hated in a society persecuted. He's seen their blood shed in martyrdom, and he's looked at the society like Babylon drunken with the blood of the prophets. They love it. He sees the dragon in chapter 12 pursuing the seed of the woman and wanting to destroy those who have the word of God, it says, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then he's seen the pictures of the beast and the false prophet and the antichrist and seen their vicious schemes of coordinated destruction, anti-God, anti-Christ, and anti-Christian. And then we read in the end of chapter 14, or should the middle of chapter 14, and around verse 11 there, he raises the cup of his indignation. And undiluted, he pours out his wrath. Why? Because he loves. Because he loves. He's angry. There is judgment. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness of Demetrio to his children and the severity towards those who would attack and would destroy. It's incredible, isn't it? We're going to read soon about later on in the chapter about God getting ready to pour out the final judgments upon an evil world and the, the seven vials or the seven bowls of his judgment. And in this pick, there's something special about those bowls because it says it's the filling up. It's the final pouring out of the wrath of God and it comes after the last trump is sounded. And we will see there a God of love, a God who is loved, responding to the presence and activities of evil and of sin. We talk about God loving as a father, his children, but we've missed the biggest thing of all. What about the love that he has for his only, dearly, blessed, begotten son? If you can penetrate, plumb, or understand the depths of love in the Godhead between the Father and the Son, so also will you understand and plumb the depths of the wrath of God to those who would take him with wicked hands and crucify and slay him. 
You know, there's a parable that the Lord spoke himself in the last week of his life, right towards the end. Remember the parable of the vineyard, the man who bought a vineyard and planted it and had a tower in it, and then he went away into a far country and he let out the vineyard to the, the servants, and he sent his own servants to say, go and get the fruit of the vineyard. And what did they do? They stoned them and they killed them. And he sent another lot and they stoned them and they killed them. And last of all, he sent his son. And they said, this is the heir, come let us kill him. And that they did. And that they've done. What will he do to those husbandmen, says the Lord? What are they going to do? He's warning them. He will miserably destroy those wicked men. The mystery of God who is love, a true father. God who would bring blessing. Yet, God who moves in judgment because he loves. This is the character. This is the kind of God we have, whose love is pure and true, a God who is love. And he has promised in Scripture to deal with all evil. And as we're moved on through, we move on through Revelation, you will see he's bringing in final judgment. Sin is dealt with. Satan is dealt with and all who advance the cause of evil and bring destruction of good, God will judge. You will not stand in parliament with impunity and decry and desecrate the name of God. You will not legislate against God's children and God's people. You will not forbid the message of the gospel, the way of salvation, the way of escape and blessing to be proclaimed. You will not do it with impunity. God has marked every action. God has remembered every sin. God has written it down in his book. And judgment will come. We stand like Noah hammering away and preaching the word of God. No, God does not stop and he will not stop until all evil is put down and all evil is done away with then there will be, when that happens, there will be no more wrath. None. There will only be blessing. There will only be loved, be love. And then we, the redeemed of the Lord, we, the overcomers, as it were, as it is in the book of Revelation, we will then be able to enjoy God, a God of love who will give himself, who will share of himself, without restraint, without wrath. And we capacitized, as it were, to receive the fullness of that love. It'll be a pure love in, in a pure world, in a home of righteousness, in a new heaven and a new earth. It's got to be in the world to come, whereof we speak. Fellow Christian, this is our hope. This is the glory that lies ahead. Sin will exist no more and Christ will be exalted and God will be acknowledged and unrighteousness will be finally done away with. And as we go through Revelation, it's going to get better and better. And this morning we're going to stand and look ahead and say, what a day, glorious day that will be. May God bless his word and bless us all this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are glad for the truths unfolded in the Holy Scriptures, the things that God has prepared for them that love him.
It's not entered into our minds or our hearts, nor have we ever seen it. But in that blessed day when faith gives place to sight, what a day, glorious day that will be. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be our blessed portion, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.